1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Bob Levy. He's the chairman emeritus of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our discussion about major cases pending before the Supreme Court in this in this term. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Always interesting to talk to Andrew about his observations of what's happening here in the United States and around the world. It is February the 28th, and on this day in 1953, Cambridge University scientist James Watson It should be James Watson and Francis Crick announced they had determined the double helix uh, structure of DNA, the molecule containing human genes. The molecular uh, biologists were aided significantly by the work of another DNA researcher, Rosalind Franklin, although she was not included in the announcement, nor did she get her share of the subsequent uh, Nobel Prize awarded for it. Though DNA was discovered in 1869 and a crucial role in determining a genetic inheritance wasn't demonstrated until 1943, in the early 1950s, Watson and Crick were only two of many scientists working on figuring out the structure of DNA. California chemist Linus Pauling suggested an incorrect model as the beginning of 1953, prompting Watson and Crick to try and beat him in his own game. On the morning of uh, February the 28th, they determined that the structure of DNA was a double helix polymer, or a spiral of two DNA strands, each containing a long chain of uh, monomer nucleotides, uh, wound around each other. According to their findings, DNA replicated itself by separating into two individual strands, each of which became the template for a new double helix. In his best-selling book, The Double Helix, in 1968, Watson claimed uh, that Crick announced the discovery by walking into a nearby Eagle pub and blurting out, we have found the secret to life. The truth wasn't that far off, as Watson and Crick had solved a fundamental mystery of science, how it was possible for genetic instruction to be held inside organisms and passed from generation to generation. Watson and Crick's solution was formally announced on April 25th in 1953 following its publication in that month's issue of Nature magazine. Uh, The uh, article revolutionized the study of biology and medicine. Among the developments that followed directly from it were prenatal screening for disease genes, genetically engineered foods, the ability to identify human remains, and the rational design of treatments for diseases such as AIDS, and the accurate testing of physical evidence in order to maintain or to convict or exonerate criminals. Crick and Watson later had a falling out over Watson's book, which Crick felt mis- misrepresented their collaboration and betrayed their friendship. A larger controversy arose when the use of Crick's and Watson and Crick made of work done by uh, DNA, DNA researcher Rosalind Franklin. Colleague Maurice Wilkins showed Watson and Crick fa- uh, Ra- Franklin's X-ray photographic work of, to Watson just before he and Crick made their famous discovery. The imagery established that DNA molecule existed in helical formation. And while Crick and Watson won the Nobel Prize in 1962, they shared it with Wilkins. Franklin, who died in 1958 of ovarian cancer and was thus ineligible for the award, never learned of the role her photos played in the historic scientific breakthrough. So, intrigue in in politics, even in the highest of science. Nevertheless, great discoveries by Watson and Crick. Stocks were mixed yesterday with the S&P 500 and the Nasdaqs inching up and the Dow dropping ahead of the release of key inflation data later this week. Former President Donald Trump has won Michigan's Republican primary as he continues his charge towards the GOP presidential nomination. The race was called for Trump at around 9 p.m. after the latest polls closed across the state, signaling that he had handily defeated his lone remaining opponent, Nikki Haley. As of 9-11 p.m., the New York Times elected election results showed Trump with 65.6% of the vote to Haley's 30.2% with an estimated 9% of vote tabulated. The primary has 16 delegates bound to it, while Michigan's GOP state convention on Saturday will see its remaining 39 delegates awarded. It's very strange how that all works, but apparently it's just to comply with the rules for the uh, RNC. Nevertheless, Trump will end up getting all the delegates. Trump's unsurprising victory places uh, further pressure on Haley, to, since she lost to the 45th president by 20 points in her home state of South Carolina on Saturday. That followed resounding wins for Trump in every other nominating contest of this cycle, including Iowa, New Hampshire, the Virgin Islands, and Nevada. Another major blow to Haley came on Saturday when, or Sunday, I should say, when it was reported that Americans for Prosperity, a Koch-backed group, Is halting spending on her campaign, and while she sputters forward with her chaotic bid, the uh, 45th president has begun turning his attention to the general election. He and President Joe Biden are set to make dueling appearances at the southern border on uh, Thursday. That should be interesting. I wonder if they'll come in contact with each other. I highly doubt it. President Joe Biden has won the Democrat primary race in Michigan despite a coalition of Arab Americans. Uh, voters, voters, vowing to punish the Democrat president over his handling of the Israel-Hamas conflict, and while Biden won his primary, it demonstrates what could be a huge issue down the road, given the number of uncommitted voters essentially voting against the Democrat incumbent. As of 9:15 Eastern, with 14% of the votes, and uncommitted voters, total uh, over 20,000 ballots cast, to approximately 15.8% of the vote. As a result, Biden's handling of the conflict, Democrat Muslim voters in Michigan plan to vote uncommitted in the primary race. But even some Democrats who are concerned, such as Representative Dan Kildee, urged them not to withhold support from the Biden and cast an undecided ballot. I share some of these concerns about the community he has raised, about, and I'll be transparent about that, he said. Abstaining from the choice does not move us forward and does not get these issues addressed. This movement, the Abandoned Biden campaign, appears to start in December over Biden's refusal to call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. So uh, right now, even though he's kind of running unopposed, he's got others still uh, running against him. So uh, again, an expression that Biden just doesn't pack the gear in order to be president of the United States, that from Michigan, or some voters in Michigan. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton on Tuesday secured a major victory in his challenge to the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending passed in 2022, with a court declaring that the bill was approved unconstitutionally. That's a big deal. President Joe Biden signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023 in December of the prior year. The measure effectively set the federal budget for the year by wrapping the 12 annual appropriations bills into a single piece of legislation. Paxton, however, argued that the bill's House's passage of the measure was unconstitutional as less than half of the lower chamber's members were physically present to vote on it. Many lawmakers who were not present voted by proxy. You remember that period of time when... uh, Nancy said that was okay to do that. Well, Paxman has specifically challenged stipulations of the bill that affect his state. Like many constitutional challenges, Texas asserts that this provision is unenforceable against it because Congress violated the Constitution in passing the law. In response, the defendants claim, among other things, that the court has no power to address the issue because it cannot look at extrinsic evidence to question whether the bill became law. That, according to U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas, uh, Lubbock Division, wrote. But because the court is interpreting and enforcing the Constitution rather than second-guessing a vote count, the court disagrees. The court concludes that by including members who are indisputably absent in the quorum count, the act at issue passed in violation of Constitution's quorum law. Isn't that great? Enforcing the Constitution its very... Very refreshing to see what's happened here. Paxton, for his part, celebrated the decision, saying the Congress acted egregiously by passing the largest spending bill in U.S. history, with fewer than half of the members of the House bothering to do their jobs, show up, and vote in person. Uh, Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi abused proxy voting under the pretext of COVID-19 to pass this law, then Biden signed it, knowing it violated the Constitution. This was a stunning violation of the rule of law, I am relieved that the court upheld the Constitution, said Paxton. I'm relieved as well. This is a great decision. I don't understand exactly what the ramifications might be and what in the law is going to be enforced or not enforced as a consequence, and I would imagine this will make it to the Supreme Court court inevitably, but it's a big deal. <laughs> You've got to follow the Constitution. I like that. While well, Sweden received the stamp of approval from Hungary's parliament to join NATO, For over a year, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, an ally of uh, President Putin uh, supposedly, blocked Sweden's uh, bid to join the alliance. But after Sweden's Prime Minister agreed to give Hungary four new jet fighters, Orban changed his tune. Now Sweden has cleared the final hurdle in its way and will will end over 200 years of neutrality by joining NATO, a move that will further isolate Russia from the West. Well, certainly I understand Sweden's desire to protect itself by joining NATO, uh, but there's so many questions about NATO and whether we should be involved and uh, just a number of questions whether NATO has outlived its usefulness since uh, the Second World War or since the uh, Cold War. Well, Wendy's created a way to make waiting in line even worse. You have to pay more when you get to the end of the line. The fast food chain, already the most expensive on the market, said it would introduce dynamic pricing, Uber-liked surge pricing for menu items at certain times of the day next year. Wendy CEO, Kirk Tanner, revealed that the company will spend about $20 million through the end of 2025 to install digital menu boards as its U- U.S. locations that can facilitate surge pricing during uh, busy periods like lunch rushes. And I can just imagine how numbers start flipping around when people come in for the lunch rush. So you don't even know what the cost of your food is going to be until you get to the end of the line. Ride-hailing uh, uh, apps and ticket uh, ticketing companies like Live Nation have caught flack for introducing markups due to surge pricing on their platforms, but despite extreme customer pushback, these companies continue to dominate their field, so it's either pay or walk home in the rain. The company still plans to expand its dynamic pricing model and even higher-priced VIP options. Wendy's move is likely to draw even more ire since the whole proposition of fast food is that it's supposed to be relatively cheap and consistently priced. Looking ahead, if successful, Wendy's adoption of surge pricing could spread to other fast food chains and restaurants as digital menus make the option more feasible than when all menus are used to be printed. It already crept into everything from bowling, I didn't know that, or even getting a good seat in the movie. So it uh, looks like we're head- looking ahead to dynamic pricing. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute, that and more, right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Bob Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service... reservations are needed check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulubee's diner open from 8 a.m until 2 p.m seven days a week and now serving dinner 4 to 8 p.m wednesdays through saturdays a terrific menu Lulubees diner in the green tree shopping center at the corner of immokalee and airport pulling roads stop by Lulubees diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rocking good time Forty-five
0: forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, Limited Government and the Rule of Law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He is the Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
3: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and focused on defending free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. Cato dot org on the web.
1: Thank you for that, Bob. So, uh, last couple of weeks we've been talking about uh, major cases pending before the Supreme Court, and I'd like to pick up with uh, the latest Title VII employment discrimination case. Can you brief us on it? What's what's happening?
3: Yeah, this is Muldrow versus St. Louis, uh, where we have a police woman that says she was transferred because of her gender. Uh, The lower courts uh, rejected her claim and the reason was she didn't prove that and this is a quote from the uh, court a tangible change in working conditions produced a material employment disadvantage in other words she didn't prove she was harmed and the court went on a transfer that does not involve a demotion is insufficient to show harm so the Biden administration supports Mulro and argues that title 7 of the Civil Rights Act, is triggered by any gender-based transfer that inherently changes the terms, conditions, and privileges of employment, even if harm is not shown.
1: That sounds pretty stupid to me. (laughs) 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 I mean, the position that that, uh, Biden is taking. So how do liberals and conservatives line up when it comes to unemployment? Yeah, well, that's
3: what's interesting about the case. See, the liberals and conservatives have hopes and fears no matter which way the case turns out. The liberals, they want Muldrow to prevail because they'd like to see employment discrimination litigation go forward without the need to prove there's material harm. But on the other hand, the liberals are concerned that if you lessen the burden of proof, that might prompt a lot of reverse discrimination lawsuits against, some of these public and private entities that have implemented DEI programs, Mm -hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion, which, of course, the liberals favor and the conservatives oppose. So, you know, diversity supposedly means ensuring the right mix of these various oppressed identity uh, groups, usually based on race or gender or sexual orientation or disability or, or wealth. So in light of last year's affirmative action case, If you preferentially treat one of those groups, that can be challenged. Mm -hmm. And so Muldrow is Mm -hmm. interesting in that regard. It's a technical case, involves statutory interpretation of Title VII, but it could have some profound implications for these employment discrimination cases.
1: I mean, really, because most of us don't like change, and if your circumstances change uh, you know, is it proper to bring this to the court to say that this is a violation of Title Seven? I mean, I don't think so.
3: Yeah. Well, common sense would suggest that if you're not harmed, you don't have a court cause of action. But the uh, the folks concerned about identity groups are up in arms no matter what, the, what trivial yeah. uh, offenses the groups are exposed to.
1: Uh, Let's just hope the Supreme Court comes out on the right side of this uh, this issue. Yeah, right. Uh, Social media is back in the news. What's the issue there?
3: Content filtering. Um, We have the first, uh, there are a couple cases. The first one's a consolidation of two cases. This is a big deal from Florida and Texas. Um, So we all know that the liberals want more filtering to screen out what they believe to be misinformation and offensive speech. But if that occurred, it might require these websites to screen every picture and video to avoid legal liability, which is just not practical. On the other hand, the conservatives want less filtering because of perceived or maybe even actual bias against uh, conservative (coughs) views. But that could mean that a website, if it had less filtering, might have to post all sorts of
2: Bad things
3: like terrorist propaganda and sexual harassment and bomb-making videos. And all of those, by the way, are protected by the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. So there's been considerable pressure in Congress from both the left and right to impose new rules for content screening. Uh, But the two sides are very far apart on the changes uh, they'd like to see. And naturally, any meddling by government is going to have First Amendment uh, implications.
1: Yeah. I remember the case of Larry, what was his name, Flint. Uh, the Larry ca- Flint. And, and, the, and the conclusion of the Supreme Court says, well, you, I think it was something like, well, you know porn when you see it. <laughs> so, right. So yeah. uh, it is a very difficult issue to be able to determine what should and shouldn't be on. So social media, I mean, Florida and Texas court, uh, courts disagree on content filtering. What will the Supreme Court say?
3: So when the, when the rules were challenged in uh, Texas and Florida, the appellate court's, Uh, went opposite ways, and so it is true that the Supremes are going to have to resolve that difference. In the Texas suit, two trade associations are are now asking the Supreme Court to reverse the Texas appellate court, which ruled that it it was okay to have a law that barred social media companies from from blocking or removing content based on the user's viewpoint. Uh, The trade associations say that if you have that kind of a rule, it's going to prevent these social media companies from controlling what appears on their platforms, including their right to remove hate speech and political disinformation and violent videos, et cetera. Um, but the trade groups, they had better luck in Florida. Uh, they challenged the uh, our state's uh, Stop Social Media Censorship Act, which was enacted after Trump was suspended uh, from Twitter uh, in the wake of January 6th. So the act provides that social media companies cannot ban political candidates or journalistic enterprise. And the appellate court in that case agreed in, uh, with, with, the, uh, with the trade groups and invalidated the law as a violation of the First Amendment. Hmm. So whenever speech is restricted based on its content, the government has a heavy burden to justify its regulations. And I doubt, frankly, that the Florida and Texas Uh, have met their burden and I suspect the Supreme Court is going to toss both of the laws. The court's likely to treat these social media companies as publishers, similar to newspapers and not as either monopolies or as common carriers.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So the administration's push for content screening, isn't that a free speech issue?
3: Indeed it is. Um, The social media companies say look we're private companies we ought to be able to do what we want with our platforms and the uh, other side says look there are all these um, um, misleading misinformation that's being posted we have to screen them out you ought to force these companies to screen out these uh, these views so it is a first amendment issue and that's what makes it that's why it's at the supreme court it's a tough issue
1: very tough indeed. It'd be interesting to see how the Supreme Court comes down on that. But we, you know, one thing is for sure, it needs fixing. I mean, <laughs> there's problems. Right. How the platforms that's, work.
3: That's right. A lot of a lot of pressure is to treat these companies as if they're common carriers. My own view is that's um, that's wrongheaded. The, these companies, you know, common carriers deal in standardized goods, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like gas or electricity, or standardized services like. Transportation, you know, uh, these con- these social media companies, they deal with expressive content, which is all over the lot and which has viewpoints associated with it. So they're certainly not common carriers, uh, but the court may come up with some middle ground where they can be instructed to delete certain uh, content and be instructed also that they may not delete certain other content.
1: And uh, the FBI cannot visit with these people and put fear in their. <laughs> Anyhow, no, another topic. Bob, Levy you again, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. I hope you visit the website, Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, Professor Andrew Joppa, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratiskel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results, Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show. Are you seeking new customers or contacts for your business? Why not promote your business to our loyal listeners? Join Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, the Collier Senior Center, Lulaby's Diner, and many others who've been advertising on the show in many cases for years. The rates are reasonable, and there's no required long-term commitments or contracts. Let me help you promote your business to our loyal listeners here on The Bob Harden Show. Visit the website bobharden.com or send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. That's bobharden at hotmail.com.
0: Welcome back to The Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you by, by Tim Garrett, candidate for Cuyahoga County Supervisor of Elections. Tim's a 33 year resident of Cuyahoga County, a military veteran, a retired sheriff's officer, and a graduate of the FBI National Academy. He stands for safe, secure, ethical elections in Cuyahoga County. Vote for Tim Garrett. Check out his website, votefortimgarrett.com. Paid for by Tim Garrett, Republican for Cuyahoga County supervisor of elections. We have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
0: Good morning, Bob.
1: Good morning, Andy. So typically we start off uh, with our discussions with a quote or two or perhaps some good news. What, what do you have in your mind?
2: I, I try to uh, extract some quotes that seem to have some uh, contemporary pertinence, so I think these will uh, one is from uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Now, I think those of your listeners who know de Tocqueville know he was very perceptive, even back there in the middle of the 19th century. So uh, he, was, he understood America perhaps better than most Americans do today. He said, America is great because she is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Yeah. And I think we're beginning to see that right now. I don't think it's a finalized statement at this point, Bob, but I I think America is losing, as as the Tocqueville would have it, uh, her goodness, let's let's phrase it that way. Uh And and I think that uh, our greatness is shrinking accordingly. Uh, and that is exactly what the Tocqueville indicated.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great observation, Andy. Thank you for that. De Tocqueville, of course, he wrote Democracy in America, and he really explained how you know our country was unique and different from others around the world and around the globe, and uh, very grateful for his wisdom. And uh, thank you for clarifying that. I don't
2: think there's ever been anything, even in the last uh, 170 years since the Tocqueville, uh, that were was as perceptive as the Tocqueville was in understanding America. So I, I think his words are certainly worth listening to. A- another quote, again, coming from the middle of the 19th century, where there seemed to be more wisdom available than there is today, uh, Abraham Lincoln said, and I think we can see this uh, the importance of this today, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation Will be the philosophy of government in the next.
1: Uh-huh. So
2: I think when we talk about the schools, the way they are being uh, ideologically skewed, I think we can document that as being a uh, a very uh, provable statement. Uh, and Lincoln's comment is absolutely uh, one that should be understood. The schools today will be the government of tomorrow, Bob.
1: I agree with that. Uh, you know, right now, we're in Florida. We're doing some good things to help Bob. Uh, correct some of the problems with public school with uh, everything from uh, you know the the, uh, uh, the the problems with the misinformation and so forth I think they're working hard to correct that but still have a long way to go
2: there's no doubt and if we look at the uh, the way the, uh, the teachers are in fact, Uh, And I hate to, I'm not attacking categorically the teachers. There are some uh, fantastic teachers out there, obviously. But if you look categorically, they come typically from the lower half of their high school classes. Uh, They are not particularly profound uh, collegiate students. Uh, So we're looking at a group of people that are uh, educating our children that are not really in any way documented uh, as being of of any significant source of wisdom. So I think in some way we have to, uh, in some way, uh, build up the, the quality of that teacher input uh, so that we can uh, begin to move forward in a better model, Bob.
1: And also uh, remove one of the important barriers to good education, which, of course, is our teachers' unions.
2: Well, there's no doubt. Uh, it's it's uh, here in, in Florida <laughs> to a certain extent. In New York, where I'm originally from, I, I fought many battles and most of them. Most of them were against the teachers' union. So uh, in many cases, I found them uh, resisting what I was saying, uh, not because I was wrong about education, but because it would in some way damage the strength of the union.
1: Yeah, right. yeah absolutely. Any other good news, Andy?
2: Well, we had last night's result uh, in the coming out of Michigan, <laughs> a very anticipated result. But uh, I think it's, uh, again, worth mentioning Donald Trump uh, uh, had about a 40-point victory over Nikki Haley, uh, I think that's been the uh, consistent pattern. I think it will show up again next week. Uh, all indications are that he will sweep the, uh, the Super Tuesday uh, uh, ballots. Um, there's something else going on with Nikki Haley. It's, she is not going to get the nomination under any circumstance. Right. If we take the most dire circumstance in terms of, of Trump's future, Uh, Will she be the the go-to nominee? I do not believe that is going to happen or can happen. So Nikki Haley is, is out there, and I think she's serving, and I think the Democrats have identified she is serving as their surrogate. Uh, recently, uh, Gavin Newsom said that they, uh, the Democrats want her in the race because she is one of their better surrogates. Right. Uh, we have James Clyburn from South Carolina, a congressman from South Carolina, uh, who indicates Haley still has a chance of beating Trump and she should stay in the race. I think her being there serves only the purpose of the Democrats, only the forces, not just against Trump but against the, the, the meaningful positions that were taken in 2016 forward by Trump. Uh, so there's, there's a high degree of funding going on with Nikki Haley. I, I think it has nothing to do with her getting the nomination. I think that is not a, a possibility. I think we're looking at a very, very well-funded, well-orchestrated uh, process that Nikki Haley has, uh, has bought into and been sold, uh, sold into, uh, and I think we're looking at that unfolding right now. I think in some way the, the new emerging Republican National Committee, as it gets, as it gets put into office in, uh, in, in March, uh, has to in some way start to unify the party behind Trump because that is where our victory will come from if we have one in, uh, in the up- upcoming November elections. Yeah. But we've got to get away from this discussion as if Haley is a, is a meaningful Republican battling it out against Trump. That is not what's going on, Bob. I'm not uh, absolutely sure how to define it, but I think this is a funded progressive process that Haley uh, is, in fact, being paid uh, to serve in that role, Bob.
1: Well, of course. Now, Trump has pivoted to the national elections and to to uh, beating Biden. Uh, in, in fact, in his last speech, he never mentioned Nikki Haley's name. Uh, her voice, is, as a consequence, has greatly diminished. I don't think she has impact anymore. I think it's just a matter of days until she drops out.
2: I think you're absolutely correct. But as, as to her do- dropping out, I certainly I uh, hope that's the case. She should have uh, dropped out a long time ago, obviously. Uh, will she persist in this process? And if she persists, Bob, I think it does nothing other than, than diminishing the, the moment in time when the Republicans f- can finally get unified for the only purpose that we should serve in November, and that is to defeat uh, the Democrats, not Joe Biden. Yeah. I have serious doubts that Joe Biden will be the nominee uh, in, the, in November. Um, I think what we're looking at is a very dangerous position that's being taken by many Republicans: is to lay all of the problems we're experiencing directly into the into the camp of Joe Biden. Now what happens when they jettison Joe Biden, when they get rid of Joe Biden, which I think will happen. I think the Democrats will claim that those problems are no longer meaningful because now they are a new group in charge, not Joe Biden. Uh, so I think we're looking at a situation where they'll allow him to, uh, to stay uh, as the potential nominee uh, so that the Republican fo- focus stays on him. And then when he's, when he's removed from the race, I think the Republicans will lose a lot of their focused voice, which will be and is now being directed at Joe Biden, Bob.
1: That's such an important point. I really appreciate you making that point. I I agree with you. I don't think that he's going to, or he may not, end up being the candidate. Maybe the Democrats are stuck with him. We'll see how this all turns out. But irrespective, we should focus more on policy and less on the person.
2: Well, I think that's exactly right. And these are Democrat policies. I think there's very little doubt that uh, Joe Biden does not have an independent mind as he sits in the Oval Office. Uh, so I think that's, that's exactly what we're looking at. Uh, whether he'll be removed or not, I have offered a previous position, not that I was predicting, but my, I, I said I, as a potential, if Joe Biden is the nominee, to me it's a, it's a potential now uh, that the Democrats believe that they have secured – the end result of that election now through fraudulent potential in voting. Uh,
1: Andy, really appreciate your commentary. We need to take a little break. Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Come back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, again, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Always good to be here, Bob.
1: Thank you, Andy. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the uh, climate change field. And uh, uh, this topic of solar geoengineering has come up. Are you familiar with it? And can
2: I certainly am. It's reached a critical mass right now. Uh, before I get into that, let me just allude to something I wanted to talk about before that Joe Biden in the Michigan primaries last night. Uh, there were 15 percent of the votes that were cast as non-committed. Now, I've read many of the conservative commentators uh, suggesting this was somehow a good thing, because it a, shows uh, a weaker Joe Biden. Uh, I think what we have to recognize is that an uncommitted vote uh, against Biden, so to speak, uh, was generated by one of the few areas where he had any, uh, anything that could resemble being correct, and that was his support of, of Israel, limited support but even that limited support of Israel. Uh, so I think when, when you see that, uh, that uncommitted uh, coming out of Michigan, that mm-hmm. is not a good sign for anyone. It is not a good thing. It re- represents a unified Islamic voice coming out of the huge Islamic population in Michigan. So I just wanted to suggest that this 15 percent uncommitted is not a, uh, a significant factor in terms of understanding Joe Biden's strength going forward. So I just wanted to get that uh, out of the way. But getting back to what you asked about the solar geoengineering uh, if we go back uh, a decade even, we can see that there was some uh, suggestion of this happening. Now, for your audience, if they're not familiar with it, it uh, basically it, it means in some way artificially uh, suppressing the, uh, the, the sunlight coming, coming to the Earth. Uh, their intent would be uh, to, uh, by doing that, would be to lower the Earth's temperatures. And, uh, you know, that is, in their mind, a great thing. In my mind it represents perhaps one of the most dangerous potentials that this planet has ever faced. Uh, Back during the advent of the uh, development of the atomic bombs, there was a concern at that point that the explosion of an an atomic weapon would in fact uh, totally ignite the entire atmosphere. It was a very limited potential, but there was concern for that. Mm -hmm. If we take that same type of situation and look at the issue of uh, of solar uh, geoengineering, where it's being suggested that the upper atmosphere should be seeded with calcium carbonate and other chemicals. And this is being well-funded, well-funded by, by Bill Gates, by, by George Soros, uh, and they want to, in fact, do this unilaterally. There's no government involved with this. There's no vote that's been taken. There's no scientific uh, paper that's uh, developed some sort of uh, uh, global consensus this particular action may take place the the dangers of it cannot be overstated. We have no idea what uh, what may happen as a result. What we do know for example, just simply on the surface of it if solar uh, if solar energy is decreased then the whole world of, of solar energy uh, of solar uh, fields uh, is going to be diminished there are crops that have that have developed needing these, the significant level of the, the solar energy. Uh, and if we just look at it as having a larger effect uh, to uh, bring on an earlier potential of the ice age, we, and sometimes when we talk Ice Age, Bob, the, uh, the, the the audience, whoever's listening to it, think this is some uh, eccentric uh, insertion into a discussion. No, there will be an Ice Age, Bob. I right. mean, that is the historic cycling, uh, but it's a matter of only if, only when. Uh, if we look at some of the more recent findings, and by the way, there are historic findings of this same sort. So let me, let me just make this clear. Recent studies and also historic st- studies have shown that it is, the first thing that happens is the global temperature increases. Then, as a result of global temperature increasing, carbon dioxide increases. In other words, temperature causes, global, uh, causes carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide does not cause temperature. Now, if we go back about 15 years, I remember the early studies at that point with some of the deep ice core drillings in the Arctic. That is exactly what they found. And this goes back at least 15 years, perhaps longer, Bob, where they found over the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, I guess they had a 425 million year time span that every single situation where there was an increase in carbon dioxide, it was preceded by increased in temperature. So the only point I'm making, and it's a significant point, is that the, the information has always supported this kind of situation. It has been rejected, ignored. It doesn't fit into the narrative. I think we can see a, a fairly recent example of that with the, uh, a Georgia Tech professor, Curry. Uh, Curry had a uh, woman out of Georgia Tech, uh, had been one of the heroes of the, the, the climate change group back around 2005. Uh, Curry had indicated there'd be a 60 percent increase in the number of hurricanes because of climate change and global warming. She was lauded by the left. She was flown all over the country to give speeches. But again, as this was happening, her critics pointed out deficiencies in her research. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, and being a good scientist, Curry went back and she found that her critics were correct, that in fact her study was was faulty, was in fact lacking in the rigor that was needed uh, to make the point she was making in 2005. So she changed her position. She has been fired from Georgia Tech. She is now seen as a climate denier and is now outside of the, as they would have it, respectable people uh, in the climate, climatology world. Yeah. I think that, is, that story is an indication of exactly what we've seen since the very beginning of this uh, of this this hoax, I would see it as a hoax, uh, where anyone who pointed out any significant opposition scientifically uh, to the narrative that was uh, being, being promoted somehow became persona non grata. And that is exactly what happened with Curry. It is exactly what happens with anyone who tries to push back against this. Now, uh, solar geoengineering is critical because if they do it, And it looks like uh, there's a good chance they will. The unknown potential of this is, in fact, uh, stark and dramatic, Bob.
1: Well, and uh, quite frankly, just the the work that I've done and and looking over these climate change issues, frankly, the best thing we could do if we're concerned about the level of carbon dioxide is plant a billion trees. (laughs) <laughs> and just to accelerate the photosynthesis process, quite frankly, because you know we have a perfect system right now that uh, God has created, that nature's created. We have a wonderful system of photosynthesis. Uh, you know, we, uh, problems of carbon dioxide are solved. By photosynthesis. Well, you're, you're presuming
2: that their real concern is climate change. You know that. Might, and by the way, I'm not faulting you. For uh, that. Of
1: course, I. No, you're but absolutely say, right. I don't
2: think that's their real their real uh, focus. I think their focus is an attack on uh, the industrial West to to gain power by diminishing the uh, the strength of the industrial West. We're seeing that happen already with the suppression of fossil fuels. So I think you're right. If their real intent is. Uh, is a, is a concern for the environment? I don't think it is. Right. Uh, then your suggestion might gain traction. But in I think in this model that we're looking at, the concern is really not the climate itself. Up.
1: Such a great point, Andy. We're gonna take another break. Can you stick I'll around? Be here, Bob. All right. We have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse. Just completing a 44,000 square foot performing arts center in downtown Naples going to be absolutely beautiful. And also currently putting on terrific performances. You can find out more and get tickets by visiting the website uh, Gulf Shore Playhouse. Dot org, Gulf Shore playhouse.org We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining
3: Always us. Always good to be here,
1: Bob. So, Andy, right now uh, we're struggling by uh, building up our military. or not re- uh, meeting our recruiting goals. Uh, I just wanted to find out what your thoughts might be.
2: Well, I think we're not. That's, that can be well documented. The reasons um, are are many. I, I happen to think it's by changing the, the culture in the interior culture of the military, many young men who would uh, previously go into the military to document their manhood, so to speak, no longer find the military to be the place where they can document their manhood uh, because of the DEI policies. We've seen those become rampant. Uh, I think we can see full expression of DEI with the very existence of of Lloyd Austin, with the uh, former Joint Chief of Staff, Mark Milley, with the... Uh, the, the current uh, chief of staff, um, uh, Charles Brown. Uh, I think we're also looking at the uh, the, the superintendent of of, um, of West Point and the the inclusion of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as a minor, as part of a of a full college degree program. So we're looking at a a military. Uh, that has been restructured primarily since starting with with Obama where he fired approximately 200 major uh, major military ranking officials fired them all of them being in opposition to the uh, to the democrat progressive lefts policies replaced every single one of them with someone who would adhere to those policies and that is where our military is is being directed and governed at this point right i, I One further point, I know you want to get into this, but in my estimation, Bob, what we're looking at is the creation of a military that is not being designed uh, for international defense situations or uh, the necessity of war internationally. I think we're building a military for the eventuality of its use in domestic America. And that is a scary thought. I can't documented. But I think by everything that we've seen happening, that is a strong potential of what is occurring, Bob.
1: Well, it certainly fits in with the narrative of developing a police state right now, because uh, th- there's a lot of evidence th- that suggests that the intent of the left at this point is to build a uh, p- uh, police state, which basically controls the individual instead of a- a embracing and uh, acknowledging and, uh, sup- and, and elevating the individual.
2: I mean that's 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 true, and what we what we have is an America uh, that has historically honored our, our troops as they should, uh, uh, has given them the the, the dignity of, of what their efforts are represented uh, and I think there was a residual of, of that that still persists uh, but as that exists what we see and, and as I just mentioned before and I uh, I, I know you've documented uh, we've seen a military that has changed entirely its culture entirely its focus from uh, from uh, defeating its enemy and destroying things which is the old saying uh, into a military that is going to be used to support progressive policies this is an extremely dangerous Dangerous phenomenon, uh, and I think uh, I'm not predicting a moment when that will be implemented. But I think it just is something that's been created for that moment, whenever it occurs. That military, our our, our own military, I think will be uh, the eventual force that that imposes on all America uh, doctrines, ideological doctrines of the left. Um, I know I know to many in your audience that mess that may sound extreme and, uh, and have no possibility of coming coming into being. Uh, I think if we look at the rest of what 's going on in America, Bob, I think there is a strong possibility that that will occur Bob
1: uh, no, I definitely agree with that Andy and uh, you know right now though the American people are pretty darn smart. And I think there's a lot of parents right now that don't want to see their kids going to war or are living under those circumstances. A lot of young people are saying, you know, maybe I'll make an alternative decision about how I'm going to uh, develop my career and my life. So uh, I think that's the, the, the real reason why we're not meeting our military goals and our recruitment goals is primarily because of the change in the culture.
2: Well, you know, I'll tell you what, I hate to disagree with you, but I will, of course. Uh, I see nothing categorically that would suggest the American people as an entity are smart. I think we're looking at at least half of them that are just absolutely the most ignorant group of people that have ever existed in a civilized nation. Uh, So there's some ludicrous things going on that uh, perhaps even uh, puts at risk the very existence of the of humanity, uh, if our niche is built on human reason and logic and uh, the ability to think uh, logically and reasonably is an extension of that thought. Um, I think we're, we're in danger of, of, of losing the entire human experience. So yes, I, I agree that there is a significant portion of America that remains uh, aware, uh, fully aware of the issues, but I think there's still a half, half of America that is, is lost, Bob, is oh. totally lost. And with the current pressures coming from the institutions of America, uh, the educational institutions, the federal bureaucracy and so forth, up and down the line, uh, I think we're looking at this being a an increasing number. So uh, I'm not pessimistic in, in that sense. I, I think we can document pretty much uh, that deficiency that exists in a large segment of the American people,
1: Bob. Yeah, No. No. I'm grateful that you made that point because I've always believed – that in America or any situation right now we have about five to ten percent of the people that make things happen about another twenty percent that watch what happened and the rest wonder what happened
2: <laughs> Yeah, I mean but that's that's a, it's a model that's probably held true across the uh, the vast expanse of history we could probably lay that exactly against uh, Nazi Germany for example or any other uh, yeah. tyrannical state it is it doesn't require a huge swash of, of swaths of population uh, to, in fact, get these things to become operative. So I think we're looking at that right now. If you look at the United States judicial system, if you look at what's happening to, uh, to President Trump, if you're looking at the, uh, the activities directed at the, the offenders on January 6th, uh, still existing, incarcerated without indictment, without trial. Uh, and, of course, we, in, uh, with a high degree of hypocrisy, constantly cite the indiscretions of Russia and Putin. And those are, to be pointed out, there's no doubt that those are indiscretions. Uh, but to suggest that our society is is uh, uh, void of that, I think uh, misses misses the entirety of modern American history, Bob. No,
1: absolutely. And the fact that uh, to, to, to have peace through strength, those are just hollow words these days, because right now we have dissipated the, the strength of our military, and so unfortunate that we'll just look forward to Donald Trump getting back in power and, and his role as President of the United States as commander chief and getting things back in order.
2: I read an interesting uh, uh, article the other day indicating that uh, they wondered, in this, in this writer's opinion, would the Democrats allow Trump to be seated When he wins or if he wins the 2024 presidential election, would they certify the election? And look, this sounds, again, extreme, but I think uh, the Democrats are capable of anything at this point. They have invested billions, if not trillions of dollars to stop this man since 2016. Would they go as far as invoking some sort of a contrived legal process to stop him from being seated? Of, of course
1: they would if they could, Bob. I can promise you it's under consideration, Andy. <laughs> Andy, I really appreciate your commentary. I'm, I'm glad
2: we finish on a note of
1: agreement. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Take care, my friend. My friend as well. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests lined up for tomorrow, including Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance, and many, many more. I really appreciate your listening to the show and thank you for your patronage. And I hope if you enjoy the show, you pass the word on to your friends. And uh, that's one of the ways we support our advertisers. And we can't do the show without them. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>